This podcast has been made possible by Planful and U.S. Bank. This is episode 626. We do a lot of reporting around revenue and pipeline, but then what I began to sort of focus us more is on profitability. Everybody, every company always wants to focus on SG&A efficiency, but you know, we did that here, but then also to focus more on gross margin and to think about all the different drivers of gross margin. And then of course, to sort of measure, measure and monitor those, right? So to think about the impact of utilization, to think about the impact of wage inflation. Uh, and then, you know, once we made certain that we were able to report types of information that was driving changes in profitability then made certain that the you know that the company understood hi it's jack sweeney on today's show we speak to jason peterson CFO of EPAM, a $2.3 billion company today with nearly 37,000 employees, perhaps best known as an applications developer and professional services firm. EPAM likes to say it specializes in digital platform engineering. On today's show, Jason explains how a key priority upon his arrival was to help EPAM's FPNA team to not only support EPAM's leadership members, but push information down to better support the management inside EPAM's many business units. Our talk with CFO Jason Peterson begins after this. In an ever-changing world, it can be tough to keep up with the latest FP&A trends and innovations that keep you ahead of the game. Luckily, there's a podcast for that. Tune in to Being Planful, the podcast for finance leaders and planning experts, and stay in the know about what's happening in planning and forecasting. Guests like influencer Chris Ortega, Boston Red Sox CFO Tim Zhu and Brian Lapidus of AFP will keep you up to speed on how you can put finance in the driver's seat this year. Find the full episodes at beingplanful.com or wherever you get your podcasts. P.S. Think you might make a great guest on the show? Shoot host Rowan Tonkin an email at beingplanful.com at planful.com. Hello, we're speaking with Jason Peterson, CFO of EPAM Systems. Jason, welcome. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Jason, we're going to kick things off where we always do, which is to ask you to look back in time for us and try to identify some of those experiences you feel prepared you for a finance leadership role. What comes to mind for you? Yeah, you know, I'd say there's probably three experiences when I when I think back to my, I guess, my, my early kind of career history. 
Two of those are really, I would say, more specific to kind of management and maybe leadership. And then one, I would say, is a really interesting experience, at least for me, that that I think has influenced the way I function as a finance professional and, and what I try to bring to my finance organizations from a, from a philosophy standpoint. And so the first two on the more management side is, you know, I think we oftentimes start in a career where we are directed by, uh, you know, a finance professional, right? So it's almost like a mentor-mentee relationship. You get regular feedback, you get regular guidance, you might have them review your work. And then one day you take that that job where, you know, you're kind of seen as the expert. So in this case, for me, I took a job in Silicon Valley. I was the FB&A head for, uh, for a series of business units for effectively a group. Um, I supported them in Santa Clara, California, and then my boss was based in Limerick, Ireland. Okay, this was a long time ago. That's a lot of time zones. People aren't working till 11 o'clock at night or starting their day at seven in the morning. So there's very little overlap to talk with your boss. And then, you know, it's, it's basically email and an occasional phone call. And so then the, the people that I worked with and I supported and then my peers looked at me as all things finance, right? If there was a question even tangentially related to finance or the finance function, I was expected to, to answer intelligently, find an answer, figure out what needed to be done. And so over time, I think that kind of forced, a, like in my thinking, kind of two different modalities on how to learn. One is that classic mentor-mentee relationship, but then the other is kind of to figure out by doing and then I think it's really probably good in your career to kind of flip back and forth between those two learning modalities. Some days you're off there trying to figure it out on your own in Santa Clara, California, and you learn that way. And then maybe you go back to another role where there's a little more opportunity to get sort of, you know, direction and kind of care and feeding from somebody who uh, is actually, you know, disciplined in your function. So that would be one. And then I think about the other thing is that first job where you don't just um, – have direct reports, um, but you actually are managing managers. And then, you know, by extension, someday what you'll be as a vice president and you'll have directors who are managing managers. And then, you know, later, obviously, you're the head of the function itself. And it's how do you provide guidance and direction to people who you don't come into contact with on a daily basis? How do you send messages to your organization and, and sort of create influence? How do you support them? Um, ultimately, how do you drive the organization? So those are two more in the kind of the leadership area. And this third one, again, it's a story that starts in Silicon Valley. And I was working in the FB&A side of the house, uh, supporting an R&D function. So working with some very talented engineers. And this was well before the days of sort of, the, you know, the entrepreneurial tech guy who's both a technical genius and, a, you know, and, and highly capable with, with sort of business and strategy and everything. And it's where the functions were still a little bit more kind of segmented. And so I was told by people, oftentimes people in the finance function, that, you know, engineers, you know, they don't care about the business. They don't really want to, you know, drive revenues or they don't care how much things cost. They just want to produce an, an elegant solution. And the thing I learned really quickly there, you know, and firsthand was it actually just wasn't true, is that good engineers actually wanted to see their products be successful in the market. And successful in the market meant that they would sell a lot of units, but they also were willing to take the effort to design a product that would be more profitable, right, that, that, that could generate good gross margins as well as sales. And, you know, not only did they want it to be sort of slick from a technology standpoint, but they wanted to see it be commercially successful. 
And so what I realized is if you actually gave them a little bit of a roadmap as how they could accomplish what they, they really wanted to accomplish. So, you know, a little education and then supported them with what I would call generally high quality management reporting, you would get actually an excellent outcome. And I can tell you stories about how I convinced people to redesign a graphics board in a way that it lowered the, the bill of materials cost and improved the gross margin on the product, even though it wasn't the sexiest um, from an engineering uh, program standpoint. Um, and what I learned, and this is what I try to teach my teams today, is that, you know, if we actually help people understand what it takes to sort of drive drive our business, and in the case of EPAM, you know, we're looking at a business that, uh, you know, is growing in excess of 20% per year while maintaining a steady level of, of profitability. When we help people understand what it takes to sort of drive profitability, support them with good with good management reporting, we get a far better outcome than we would get operating with, let's say, a more traditional sort of finance-driven command and control approach. So I guess those would be the experiences that I think are, are you know, were really valuable to me. Now, I, I want to mention uh, just one of the companies that you, you made a certainly a career investment with was Cognizant Technology Solutions, a company many, many people are familiar with. And you had a couple of interesting roles there. And I, I, I thought it was interesting because you had already had uh, let's let's say a CFO tour of duty prior to joining Cognizant, and do you come in there as the head of uh, financial planning and analysis? That's a, a you know a coveted role. Let me just put it that way. Yeah, so it was it complex, and my career is definitely one of the more let's say the traditional let's say an old fashioned approach to finance, where you work in many different roles and you do a lot of different sort of lateral job moves, and so. You know, I've run accounts payable teams. I've done cost accounting. I've, I've started in the MBA FP&A side of the house, but I've done general ledger accounting, supportive M&A transactions. So lots of different things. And so, you know, I was a CFO of a small company, a startup, um, again, kind of an interesting sort of software and services company. And then, you know, long story, but you sort of make a transition. And I came in actually as just a, you know, a part of the finance organization, part of the FP&A organization. Later was elevated to, to be the head of the, the FP&A organization total, which was over 100 people. Um, and again, a large and at that time, a, a quite successful company. And so, uh, and then did a number of different things in, inside of, uh, of, of, of Cognizant. Can I ask, I, the other interesting role I thought was, um, the emerging business accelerator. You were somewhat involved, it sounds like, in some of uh, the startup explorations that were going on there. Is that a correct assessment or would you put it another way? Yeah, it's funny. I had done something similar in a company called Philips Semiconductor, where I'd been part of a set of emerging business units. And in the case of this with with Cognizant, they were trying to invest in digital and create new businesses that had both sort of IP as well as services. And so, yes, it was, um, you know, both focused on the digital practices, but also focused on trying to sort of create sort of a startup incubator approach. Interestingly, I think it's what made me um, attractive to Arkady Dopkin as at least a candidate for the role as CFO here at EPAM. So I think I will be uh, forever grateful that I had the opportunity to do that job at Cognizant so that I could come to work here at EPAM. Well, that's certainly a great entrepreneurial tale uh, there as far as uh, Arkady Dopkin and how uh, EPAM came to be. But its makeup, uh, in some ways, uh, is similar to uh, Cognizant. Maybe that's put you on the radar as well, or what would you tell us? 
Yeah, I would say similar, but really different. And I would say what one of my early experiences at, at EPAM is that I'm kind of walking around, and maybe this is embarrassing to say, because I kind of thought maybe the way other people do that, that EPAM is like cognizant, but with an Eastern European footprint. And I had had all that experience in Silicon Valley. And so when I got to EPAM, I realized that actually this felt a lot more like the companies I worked for in Silicon Valley that were in, you know, very intensive R&D companies. And I realized that there's just a level of software engineering and, and technical capabilities inside EPAM, which are really, really different than I think than many of the, the many of our, our peers. And so, again, I felt in some ways like I was back working for Silicon Graphics or Analog Devices or some of these other more sort of R&D driven companies. And, um, and the difference with, with EPAM really is, if I can just launch into that, is that, you know, it's a company that started 25 years ago with the premise that there's really high quality engineering talent in Eastern Europe, and it should be matched with customers in, uh, in the U.S. And, and later in Western Europe. And so the company starts with a footprint in Minsk, Belarus, and in Princeton, New Jersey. And uh, it starts with a, literally a handful of, of employees, and today is on the way to, to 40,000 employees. And, and it's a company that starts in Minsk, Belarus, and now has global delivery around the world, not only in Eastern Europe, but uh, in Latin America, in, in, in China, in India. Um, so again, very much of a global company. And again, it's a, it's a company that really does have a, you know, an extraordinary strength in, in digital platform engineering and software development. And so, you know, I could talk a lot about kind of the capabilities of the firm. I could describe a little bit to you, you know, the types of projects that, that we've worked on and, and kind of, you know, what they've ultimately done for end clients, or we could we could go on to another topic. I just, my, my understanding of EPAM or, or from a, a ways back is, uh, I think, financial services. And I'm sure it's the portfolio is much more diverse today, but um that's pretty spot on in some certain respects. Am I right about that? Yeah, you know, it starts with a very much a, a lot of technology clients. So, so big customers today would be customers like Google, platform companies like Expedia, but UBS is a well-known customer. And so that would be correct in terms of financial services there. We would have, you know, co-developed with UBS, their smart wealth uh, platform, which is, you know, an innovative and ultimately an award-winning uh, wealth management platform. We also would do work with, you know, global media companies, for instance, Liberty Global. We developed, uh, you know, a, a platform for them that was cloud-based, that was, you know, any, any content, any device, anywhere, and that was extremely well received by the market in Europe. And so, again, we've got clients, you know, in a, a whole series of different industry verticals. But, yeah, we do, you know, a fair bit of work with, with financial companies, including hedge funds and payment processors as well as banks. Okay, you arrive, you step into the CFO office. It's a pretty substantial sized company at this point. What do you need to do to begin moving uh, the team in the direction you want it? Is there a part of finance that you reorganize? Tell us about what your, your, your steps are upon your arrival. Yeah, so I join a company that's growing rapidly, that's got pretty solid profitability and a, you know, a pretty capable finance organization. So, you know, that you kind of look under the hood, I guess, and what you're trying to do is make improvements without breaking anything. And so um, the, one of the things that happened, though, is the company had grown really quickly. And I think over a period of time, you know, sometimes you'll underinvest in certain of your functions. And I think that was probably the case with finance. And so I started by making some strategic hires. So strengthen the external reporting, the controllership and, and the tax teams. And then from a reorganization standpoint, 
I've done a lot of things, but you know, much of my much of my career has been in, in FP&A. So I worked with the head of FP&A who already had some ideas. And we we organized the FP&A group to not only support corporate leadership decisions, but to be able to sort of take information decision making down to the BU level and be more supportive of, of the different business units, um, while of course continuing to support the senior leadership. Then I would say one other focus I introduced, and not only with the FP&A team, but with the broader finance organization, is to really focus on, on being more future or forward kind of looking. You know, so I introduced a regular cadence around forecasting and processes that I guess would allow us to sort of identify problems or bumps in the road. And the idea was, you know, it would give us enough time then to do something about it or, you know, if, if we didn't do anything, we couldn't do anything about it. At least we knew it was coming. And so that's really probably what I brought to the, the company in maybe my first year here. And what uh, I guess you're, you're hitting on something there. I want to see if I can have you clarify better for us. Uh, I usually uh, ask the question as to what the what are the business dynamics you're trying to expose better to the organization or measure? What are you trying to bring out? Uh, would that be the area that you're you would point to? Yeah, I mean, certainly it's to, to be more forward looking. But I think you know, again, if I think about where we were, is that the company you know has delivered revenue growth until this sort of pandemic time period uh, at a rate in excess of twenty percent, sometimes you know twenty five percent annual growth rate, and so so revenue was really not the challenge. Kind of knock on wood. And instead, you know, we were beginning to see sort of a downward drift in profitability. And so that really became kind of the, the area of focus for me and, and certainly around these sort of identifying kind of bumps in the road. Um, I'm lucky, again, that, that EPAM has got a, you know, a real high degree of experience with data. So how to organize, how to clean, store, produce actionable insights. We do a great job of, of developing dashboards. And we eat our own cooking, right? So you've got all those capabilities that you can take advantage of internally. Um, and so we do a lot of reporting around revenue and pipeline. But then what I began to sort of focus us more is on profitability. Everybody, every company always wants to focus on SG&A efficiency. But, you know, we did that here, but then also to focus more on gross margin and to think about all the different drivers of gross margin, and then, of course, to sort of measure measure and monitor those, right? So to think about the impact of utilization, to think about the impact of wage inflation, um, but then to think about how, how does customer mix and a changing customer mix impact the business? How does, um, uh, you know, the changing resource profile uh, with, with uh, delivery done in different countries, how does that impact the business? Uh, and then, you know, once we made certain that we were able to report types of information that was driving changes in profitability. And I'm a big believer in showing a lot of trend data. Just make certain you can see current information, but also see information over time so you can see how things have changed. Um, then made certain that the, you know, the, the company understood kind of what things were driving and changing profitability, and then did something pretty traditional, made certain that, that each of the account teams had a very clear understanding of what profitability was expected from them at the account level. Um, and then, of course, understood that, that, you know, their success in driving profitability at the account level is what ultimately drove profitability at the company level. And it's worked out well. We, we've kind of raised our profitability over time and I would say become much more, um, much more predictive in terms of assessing what our profitability is going to be. So you're touching on something that many finance leaders can relate to. And, and this is hard. This is challenging. 
And I have to believe there are several senior sales people on certain uh, client teams uh, that would begin a sentence since Jason arrived. <laughs> this is a sensitive area for finance to play because in every way, uh, finance leaders have tried to tell us they're stepping up to play a role other than uh, cutting costs, other than or telling people no, or you know, handing out measures that prevent certain opportunities from coming to the surface. Driving profitability, to me, walks that line. So for you to sort of educate the senior salespeople as to why the company has to do things differently is a challenge that so many finance leaders face. And at the same time, it contradicts sort of this uh, business partner role that so many finance leaders like to believe they're they're playing today as well. How am I doing? Am I describing a, the situation correctly or would you take exception to, to what I've said? You know, I oftentimes try to be, um, you know, have a certain amount of humility, right? You know, when you're talking about, you know, improving margin or taking up prices or not providing price concessions, is that I oftentimes say, hey, it's really easy for me to, to ask you or expect you to do that sitting from, you know, sitting in my quiet office here in, in, in Newtown, Pennsylvania, right? I know it's much harder to have these tougher conversations with, with the clients. And I do go off and have those, those conversations with clients as well, just to make certain that I'm kind of keeping my hand in it and understand what sales and account um, managers are expecting. But I once had some really good feedback. I jumped on a plane, flew down to Atlanta with a, with a business unit head, and I was talking with her and he said, you know, the, the thing that you've been doing in, in your town, in our town halls, where you talk to us about the importance of, and it's not just profitability for profitability's sake, but it's what allows us to invest in the business and continue to drive growth. Okay. It really helped us understand the importance of, of effectively account profitability and gave us much more confidence in, um, in, in delivering sort of rate requests and, and sort of standing firm on rates once we understood why it was important. And, you know, that was great feedback to get. And uh, it was also a good sales call down in Atlanta. So it was a productive day. Were they asking for, uh, you know, more discipline uh, on your end in certain respects to rates? Or what, am I, do I have that right? Or what are you? Yeah, the company's always had, you know, the company's always had good rate discipline because I do think we do have a differentiated product offering. But I think it, particularly with sort of newer rates, for different new skill sets and, and in some cases with, with new customers, the, the, just the, you know, the courage to sort of lay rates on the table that, that historically we might not have priced at. I want to quickly touch on dashboards with you. Um, Are you, did you change the way the company used them or modify it in some way? Was there a certain group of executives who you thought would be better off uh, having a different type of dashboard, anything like that you can share how uh, the use of dashboards has changed? Yeah, you know, it's, you always have such a different audience, right? And so again, you know, EPAM is, you know, it's such an amazing company in terms of the amount of data it has, in terms of we have all of these, um, you know, internally developed sort of platform technologies that are proprietary that we use to run the business that we use to manage our engineering teams that we use to sort of, you know, help us deliver on complex programs. So there's just an awful lot of data. And some people, including the, you know, the CEO of the company, can drink really deeply. You know, he can go deep into all the, all the data and likes to look at the numbers. 
some people want to have somewhat more summarized views. And so I guess, you know, I'm always a believer in what I'll call kind of a peel the onion approach, which is some of your audience is going to want to have summarized data, um, make that available to them for the people who want to go a little bit deeper, allow them to click down into a somewhat greater level of detail. And then, of course, allow people to go as deep as they want to continue to sort of peel the onion. Um, so in my case, I think a lot of what I try to do is bring, uh, I would say, it, historical trends. Like I'm a big believer in you can't say because it happened this way in Q3 of last year that it's going to happen this way at Q3 of this year. And certainly this year is different um, from just about any other year. But there's a lot of sort of trend development that you see around pipeline, for instance. And, you know, you get a sense for am I, is my pipeline development occurring the way it did in past quarters? Or am I behind? Or am I ahead? How comfortable should I be? How much do I need to push? Um, and so I think I brought some of those kind of, you know, taking some of the data that we already have and then applying, let's call them a little bit more sort of predictive analytics. And then again, again, bringing also current information, but also trend data to historical trend data to look at. What about the uh, the net promoter score? Is EPAM put that into its mix? Is that a, a metric it watches closely or is there some variation of that type of non-financial metric that uh, EPAM uses? Yeah, I mean, I've been asked about it and we're, you know, beginning to, to I think, um, you know, pay more attention to it. But it, probably at this stage, it's, it's probably our focus on it is not as advanced as maybe it could be. You mentioned uh, COVID a few times, of course, and this new environment we're in. Can you tell us a little bit about how the companies responded to it and what you think? Um, you know, how it's going to impact the company, maybe change how it operates going forward in some way. Yeah, and I think this is actually an interesting story. And I probably talk kind of broadly about what we did as a management team and then also just some of the traditional kind of financial areas of focus. So, you know, hopefully like everybody, we started with a focus on, you know, ensuring the safety of our of our people around the world and also focused on the communities in which we operate. And so, you know, we we started by helping to bring PPE equipment into some of the countries that we operate in that didn't have access to, to as much of the material where it was really in quite short supply. We made contributions here in the U.S. around sort of, you know, food security, and then we've entered into a partnership with UNICEF globally. Um, so, but then from a tactical business standpoint, We've got operations in Hong Kong and China. And so, you know, when we started to see things happening there, I guess what maybe it was February, we activated our crisis management committee. Uh, and then we began to look at what was going on. And what we realized is that, um, you know, you could respond to it, particularly in a, in a business like ours that, that is really kind of a digital engineering focus. Is If you could continue to work from home, you could continue to deliver for your clients, you could generate revenue, you could get get done what they needed to get done from a technology program standpoint. And so we began to think about what if this thing does go global? And what we realized that many of our clients still expected us to work inside of a physical delivery center. So we said, what we need to do now quickly is reach out to those clients and say, if this thing ends up in the Ukraine or if it ends up in Spain or if it ends up in all these places that, of course, it did end up, okay, would you let us continue to, to do the work that we need to do for you, for your programs in a, in a distributed work from home environment. So we got pre-approval. We'd made investments in security, which we learned about earlier today, and a series of, of other investments. Um, and so we were actually able to, to deliver in this distributed fashion, uh, you know, and, and actually delivered, you know, stronger revenues in Q1 than we, we would have expected. Um, and, you know, and we're stabilizing here in the, in the Q2 and Q3 environment. Uh, 
you know, so th- then the other thing I think that we probably did is we continue to use the technology that we've got and the, the, the platforms and the data. But then we did sort of daily stand up meetings. So there's a European meeting in the morning starts at 730. There's a, a North American meeting that starts at five. In the, and we match both uh, the demand teams and the supply organization. And we very quickly react to sort of changing, um, you know, changes in, in the supply and demand environment. Um, if we're seeing a ramp down here, where can we sort of redeploy the resources in another account that might be ramping up? Uh, and then from just a finance standpoint, we did what you would expect, right? We, you know, immediately sort of focused on cash. We, we stood up um, a dashboard for us that's highly focused on, on daily cash collections. And again, gives us some predictive analytics on where we think, it, you know, we're going to close the quarter from a cash collection standpoint. And then I stood up a, a, a quick sort of credit analysis team to sort of evaluate clients that needed sort of extended payments and, and whether or not we were willing to authorize those based on what we thought was going to happen to them from a credit worthiness standpoint. And then finally, just a whole lot of AR analytics um, that are kind of easy to read and kind of follow. So we created some dashboards pretty quickly around cash collections and, you know, and, and, our, and you know, we've done a good job in a difficult environment. Yeah. Is there a scenario planning goes? Was there a plan? You know, what if uh, here's what happens if uh, we experience this? Here's if it's uh, sort of the moderate uh, situation and here's where it gets, uh, you know, more <laughs> more desperate for less of a better Yeah, word. no, it's uh, interesting that you say that. So, yeah, we definitely used uh, in the, the reference point was versus Q1. If revenues were to decline by this much, what would we do? If revenues were to decline by that much, what would we do? If revenues were declined by that much, if we thought it wasn't going to recover in Q3, and so yes, so we had had different scenarios that um, that that we would enact, and you know, and fortunately, it didn't go quite as deep as as we thought it might potentially. And again, with our business, we actually think that we're going to see a, a strong recovery, and and again, probably greater demand. Uh, as people, you know, work to, to figure out how to change their business models and in light of everything that's happened. But yes, we did a lot of scenario planning with kind of if this happens, this is what we'll do. And that was with, uh, I imagine, your FP&A team or was there a, a certain, uh, you know, SWAT team that you put together to uh, to work yeah, on so, different scenarios? So, so, you know, it's it, I think we were meeting probably like Saturday and Sunday um, with the, the leadership team to kind of go through things. And so it would be CEO, COO, chief people officer. It would be me. It would be the head of the FDNA organization. It would be a couple of the analysts underneath, uh, a manager and a couple of analysts underneath them. So, yeah, so it was that type of modeling. What would happen if we had to do this? What would happen if we had to do that? And then, of course, the cash flow modeling involves some people from Treasury and also, uh, you know, people from the uh, the revenue AR side of the house. Excellent. Well, thank you for that nice overview. Um, we always like to ask for a finance strategic moment, which is simply uh, <laughs> you've had many of these over the course of your career, but we're looking for just one. Uh, and, and we're really looking to demonstrate or have uh, finance leaders reveal how finance play such a strategic role in business, but your lines of sight allowed you to see something in the numbers, uh, whether it was a risk or an opportunity and you responded to it somewhere along the course of your career. What comes to mind when we ask for a finance strategic moment? Yeah, so I want to make clear that this did not occur at EPAM. This occurred at a company uh, many years before, before EPAM. 
Um, and it's, it's a good story. And I think it probably works again as sort of a philosophy as a finance professional. So I worked at a company where there was a senior marketing person who was, um, I guess, massaging the data. And that's a generous term that was being used internally and externally that, that influenced the way people were seeing the, our market share. So we were a, a company that had a large market share inside of a market that only had probably two other competitors. And so the, the distortion in the information actually sort of, you know, we were consuming the information external internally. It was being validated uh, by external sources, by market analysts, because some of that information was being being reported to market analysts. And then what it was causing us to do is to think that, you know, we're doing OK. You know, it's a market that's not growing or maybe it's shrinking, but we're really not doing that badly. And eventually we kind of figured out that something doesn't look right with these numbers and, and we realized what was going on and we were actually losing significant market share as a business. Um, and so the, the, you know, we, we had been losing market share for a period of quarters, probably a year and a half. And now here you are and you have this moment. And first off, you can, you know, decide what we think about the person who's misreporting. But what you realize now is you're armed with the truth and that truth is bad news. And that type of truth actually really kind of sets you free. I mean, now you actually understand what your situation is. And actually, we made some strategic decisions. We made some changes in how we were going to market. We actually clearly had to do an awful lot of work in terms of our product offering. And in the next generation of products, we reversed the market share loss and actually had a significant sort of market share gain. But we had to sort of acknowledge how bad things were before we could really sort of, you know, make the effort to, to sort of improve it. And I think that experience um, and, you know, I was part of the team that both uncovered the problem and then sort of focused on what we had to do next. OK, and I think there's a, oftentimes a cultural bias to either to want to hide bad news or, or shade bad news. Um, and I think we even see it in terms of how people will present numbers. You can sort of present in a way that it sort of puts a spin on numbers. And what I always tell my teams based on that experience and sometimes I'll tell them about the experience is that I want to see unvarnished numbers. You know, I want all of us to look at them, and particularly if they involve forecasts or a change in forecast where the forecast is getting worse. And I want us to be really clear-eyed and objective. And what I tell them is I say, you know, we can decide how we want to communicate the numbers and identify the actions that we need to take to improve the numbers, to really improve the business conditions that improve the numbers. However, let's first start by making certain that really, really understand the numbers. And so, yeah, so that I would say was a, an important life experience and, again, influences how I approach my job. When we return, CFO Jason Peterson enters the mentoring round. The business landscape is changing quickly. As the pressure to manage expenses efficiently and strategically increases, you need solutions that not only help drive down costs and improve efficiencies, but meet the changing needs of your business. At U.S. Bank, we can help. We'll work with you to uncover your specific payment challenges and bring you proactive and innovative solutions and strategies that help you meet the financial goals of your organization our commitment to doing the right thing for our customers has earned us the designation of one of the world's most ethical companies from the Ethisphere Institute for six years in a row. To learn more, visit us at usbpayment.com. Uh, we're going to ask you to look back again now, and I think I'd like to 
just go back to your uh, 2017 when you arrive at, at EPAM again, if you could go back in time and give yourself some advice. Um, what would that be if uh, that first week, that first quarter, if you could go back and tell yourself something, what would it be? Yeah, so this one's a little bit more personal. And so, you know, I think all of us who sort of, you know, become CFOs, you know, you kind of look back and you've had these different CFOs that, that you've come into contact with. And in many ways, you're trying to I kind of be like them, or maybe there's sort of a composite view of, you know, the tough CFO that, that drives people, the numbers or the strategic CFO that sort of does deals. And I know that when I started, you know, I, I wanted to seem competent. I wanted to seem smart. I wanted to see capable, worthy. I wanted to, to be seen as, you know, somebody who could make tough decisions. And uh, the thing that I guess I would say, and this is going to be funny for people who've known me for a long time, is, you know, don't be afraid to show your, your human side, your humanity. And so, you know, I had something that happened to me that was, you know, a, a real personal loss outside of work my second year on the job. And I've always, you know, flown internationally. I meet with teams. Much of my staff are actually based in, in Minsk, Belarus. And we would have these, these meetings where, you know, we have myself and a couple of leaders and we'd be trying to provide guidance around, you know, how the company's doing, how the finance function contributes, um, what we need to do differently. Uh, so if you think about it, it's, you know, we're on a stage, you've got a microphone, there's 80 to 100 people um, in the, from your management team who are, who are listening. Uh, asking questions. And, you know, I always thought, you know, I explained my thinking. I, I, um, I uh, provide, you know, I can be humorous. So, you know, I, maybe I share a little bit about myself. But what I think I realized ultimately was a little bit performative. And after, after that really significant personal loss, I went back and I presented. And I could tell there was something, something a little bit different in terms of how I was presenting. And I could tell that people were responding differently, but I, I really couldn't figure out what it was. But I knew that there was something that had changed. There was like more humanity was kind of, you know, who knows, maybe even more vulnerability was, was out there on stage with me. And one of my most senior employees came up to me afterwards and she said, you know what, um, I've talked, and we talked later that day. And she said, I've talked to people throughout the day. And they said, you know, we always really respected you. You know, we knew you knew a lot. We were willing to follow your direction because you were knowledgeable. Um, but this was the first time where we really felt like you were part of us and we were really part of your team. And uh, now, you know, we're, we're willing to follow you. And, um, and as a result, actually, the team has really kind of come together in a way that I never would have predicted. And so I just say, hey, you know, you know be willing to show your human side. Uh, it makes your work relationships richer and uh, ultimately produces better outcomes for, for you and the company as well. Wow. Great, great insight. I don't think we've had it put quite that way before. And I do think many finance leaders struggle to uh, sometimes reveal that personal side. So that's a wonderful uh, takeaway for everyone. Thank you. Um, we, we'd like to, so long as we're talking about the personal side, we always like to find out if you got a habit or something that you do on the, on the personal side, part of your daily routine, something you do for yourself, that you think in some ways may have contributed to your your success in some way. Anything come to mind? Yeah, you know, probably like many people, I exercise regularly. I started meditating about seven years ago and tried to do that pretty regularly. Dabbled a little bit in Buddhism, so not too deeply. Um, 
I think it's it's great for energy level, attention span, probably makes me kinder. And I would say kind of evens out my intensity. Uh, you know, I was a chess player for, for a fair bit. And I think there's a lot of good kind of life insight that comes from playing chess. And then, you know, I just always had a I kind of, I'm from Western Nebraska. I have a father who was a farmer and there's just a super strong kind of work ethic there and, you know, quality of product and output. And, and those are all things that I probably take to work every day. Is there a book that comes to mind when I ask if you got a selection for us? Okay, so I'm a reader, <laughs> and so fiction and nonfiction, and I would say a lot of it really isn't isn't industry oriented. But so I was reading this book called The Brief Wonderful Life of Oscar Wilde, which which was by Junot Diaz, and the storyline takes place in the Dominican Republic. Um, and so now I'm reading right right this moment I'm reading a book about the Trujillo regime, which is very much nonfiction. But if I were to sort of look at some books that I've read over the last couple of years, um, you know, Zone to Win. Organizing to Compete in the Age of Disruption by Jeffrey Moore. I think that's a very good read, very thoughtful, very deep. Not not long, but but a really you know powerful kind of read. And then I read a book that is lighter, that I think is fun and also interesting. Okay, and this book is called Geography of Gen- Genius by Eric um, Viner or Weiner. Um, and what it really focuses on is is um, it talks about you know genius actually often occurs in clusters. So think about Athens, think about Florence. Um, you know, and then what it tries to do is, is sort of go in almost like a travel log, identify what was going on during certain golden, golden ages in those places um, and what sort of resulted in these kind of genius clusters and all this creativity. And, you know, some of it is interesting. Some of it you realize you can bring into your own life. Um, maybe some of it you could actually bring into your organization. And so, again, that's uh, Geography of Genius by Eric Weiner. Great, great selections. We haven't had them before, so all the better. So thank you for those. We're finally up to our final question, uh, Jason, where we ask you to look forward for us. And uh, we're looking for those priorities that you have for the next 12 months. What are they? What would they be? Yeah, there's a lot of keeping busy with all the day-to-day, but, you know, at the end of 2019, the company generated $2.3 billion in revenue. Uh, we were growing the business at, at a rate in excess of 20% and had been for like 36 quarters. Uh, we expect that our growth rate will return to that level. So in the not too distant future, we're going to be a $5 billion in you know annual revenue company. And so a lot of the focus, you know, other than the day-to-day is really thinking about you know, what sort of people, processes, systems do we need to put in place um, somewhat more broadly, but certainly within the finance function to support what I expect to be a, a much bigger and, and more complex business. And so I guess it's as simple and complicated as that. Jason Peterson, thank you for joining us on CFO Thought Leader. Thank you for having me. Hello, listeners. Do us a favor. Be certain to subscribe to CFO Thought Leader on Apple Podcasts. Or if you're an Android user, check us out on Spotify or Google Play. If you like the show, please recommend it to a friend. Oh, and by the way, the CFO Yearbook 2021 Print Edition debuts on Amazon this quarter featuring 100 profiles of finance leaders from our 2020 season. Would you like to learn more about our CFO guests? 
order the CFO Yearbook 2021. Thank you for supporting our efforts to bring you career journeys of CFOs driving change. We'll be back with another episode very soon. Thank you for listening.